You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Stonegate, you can have a seat there where you are and thank the Lord that Jesus is more dependable than Texas weather. Amen? So here we are. We are inside. The tomb is still empty, and it's going to be a great day. Uh, You know, when you look back over Christian history, Christians have for centuries now gathered on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, to celebrate the risen Jesus. Now, why have Christians done that? Uh, Well, here's one answer. It's because Christianity is a resurrection religion. If you take the resurrection out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. We are a resurrection people. So as Christians, we celebrate the life of Jesus, that God came and walked among us, living perfectly uh, in our place. We also celebrate as Christians the death of Jesus, that Jesus was pinned to a cross, and there on a cross, all of God's wrath for our sin was unleashed upon him. As Isaiah says, the prophet, he really was pierced for our transgressions. Uh, But as Christians, we don't just celebrate the life of Jesus, and we don't just celebrate the death of Jesus, we also celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection reminds us that Satan, sin, and death do not get the last word, God does. The resurrection of Jesus, I often think of it like a movie trailer. It's a preview of coming attractions. It's just a preview of what's to come when Jesus comes back and writes every wrong. When he takes every crooked thing and makes it straight. When he takes every broken thing and makes it new again. It's a preview of that day when Jesus comes back to do that work. As one of my pastor friends loves to say, he says, if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, then nothing else really matters. And this is one of the things I love so much about the resurrection It has a way of forcing the biggest questions in life to the front of the line. It has a way of lifting our gaze beyond what is small and trivial and insignificant in our life. And it sets before us the biggest things, the biggest questions. The resurrection forces us to face Jesus forces us to make decisions about Jesus, to decide what are we going to do with the person of Jesus. As Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you can crown him or you can kill him. But the one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. It just, it forces a decision. The resurrection won't allow us to just say, man, there's a good, interesting guy and then move on about our day. No, it forces us to decide. It it brings Jesus to the front of the line and says, you're going to have to decide on him. The resurrection of Jesus is designed to make us answer the most important questions of life. Like, are you right with the risen Jesus? Could there be any question more significant than that one? Are you right with the risen Jesus. My hope today is that when you leave, you are clear about that. Are you right with the risen Jesus? Now to get there, I want to consider this passage in Luke 23. 
Uh, Let me give you some context. In Luke 19, Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, and the crowds are happy that he's there. Uh, But that soon changed. Four days later, on Thursday, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples, and when they finish that meal, he walks them to the garden, and there they pray. And Jesus knows the painful road that's in front of him. Uh, He knows what's coming. And so his prayers were so intense and his stress so great, the scriptures say that he began to sweat blood. Uh, Then in the early hours of Friday, he was betrayed and arrested. He went through six makeshift trials, a hellish beating, and then under the weight of popular opinion, Pilate sent Jesus to be crucified. And that's where we pick it up in Luke 23, verse 32. The Bible says, two others who were criminals. Uh, Mark and Matthew give us a little description. It says they were thieves. So we know what type of criminals they are. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, part of what this text is going to do for us this morning is it's going to show us what we need to be right with the risen Jesus. So it gives us a picture. There's two criminals on each side of Jesus. And think about these criminals this way. Uh, These two criminals are representatives. They are stand-ins for the whole lot of humanity. Every one of us in this room, they're watching online. Every one of us is going to be represented by one of these two criminals. The question, are you right with Jesus? And listen, everything hangs in the balance of that question. What happens after your death hangs in the balance? What happens with forever hangs in the balance of, are you right with Jesus? And that question, are you right with Jesus, will be answered by, which of these two thieves represent you? So this passage is going to help us see that clearly. And it brings this passage three questions to the surface. Three questions to the forefront. Here's the first question. Do you see your sin? That's the first question this passage is going to ask us. Do you see your sin? Luke 23, starting in verse 39, says this. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Both of these two men were criminals. Both were justly condemned criminals, but only one of these two criminals could see it. Only one could see that they are receiving the due reward of their deeds. See, only one criminal could own his crimes, could own his condemnation. One could, the other couldn't. One could look at himself and see that, yeah, the sentence has fit the sin. The other couldn't. One could look at himself and see that, yes, I am in great need because of my sin. One could see that, but the other couldn't. And the question becomes for us, which of these two criminals are you? The one who can see his need, see his sin, or the one who couldn't? Now, according to the scriptures, here is a sobering reality. We're all criminals. You're a criminal. I'm a criminal. That's the sobering reality from the scriptures. And we come by our criminality naturally, right? The Bible says that we are born in iniquity. 
east of Eden. Everybody post Genesis chapter 3 in the scriptures, they are born in such a way where sin is now second nature to them. So in other words, every sweet little baby that comes out of the womb, they are cute and criminal all at the same time. Every single baby, right? Because we're born in iniquity. Sin is now second nature to us. And because sin is second nature, the Bible says we have all sinned. We are now all criminals in the court of God. Now, my experience is that few people see themselves that way. Criminals in God's court. It's not the way we see ourselves. Now, why is that? Well, I think the primary reason is because we tend to compare ourselves with other people. We tend to believe that God has a way of grading that is on a bell curve, right? So all the criminals are on the bell curve, and we're just one of the many criminals on the bell curve. That's how we typically see it. So if I'm standing before God, uh, I know my crazy neighbor is going to be standing before God, and I just know if God's going to have anything to say about who's who and what's what around here, I'm going to be okay when compared with that guy. This is our general posture. It's, it's some sense of like, I, I know I'm not Mother Teresa, but I know I'm not Hitler either. And when all things are weighed, I'm probably on the good side of the scale. This is how most people see themselves. But, but here's the problem. God has no bell curve. There is no bell curve with God. God's grading goes like this. It's perfection or we don't pass. That's how God grades perfection or we don't pass. Uh, When God judges us, it won't be on a curve with other criminals. It will be compared to God's perfect law, God's perfect standard of righteousness. So what is God's law then? What what is God's perfect standard of righteousness? Well, the condensed version is the Ten Commandments. Uh, So let's just take a few of those commandments. We could go commandment number nine. Uh, The ninth commandment is do not lie. That's any lie. That's all lies. That's white lies. That's exaggerating the truth, right? It's all of those things. And um, we all tend to want to kind of see ourselves as honest people, right? We, we all want to see ourselves that way. But, but if someone tracked you over the next month and they documented every lie, any lie, all lies, all the forms of lies, they documented every lie that came out of your mouth over the next month, it would be a painful day, wouldn't it? And what do you call people who have lied to you? A a liar, right? That's the ninth commandment. How about the eighth commandment? Do not steal. That's big things. That's little things. We can steal material things like money, like cars, like that thing that happened to be in your pocket when you walked out of the store. Uh, The Bible even says when we lack generosity that we are stealing from God, right? So we can steal material things. We can also steal immaterial things, um, like a person's good name or their reputation through slanderous words. If we followed you around every day for the next month and we tracked every moment of thievery, it would be an ugly day for us all. And what do you call a person who steals? A thief, right? Yeah, so we could go to the seventh commandment, do not murder. And Jesus clarifies in the New Testament um, that we murder in our hearts long before we murder with our hands. 
He says, this is the moment when you've crossed the line of, of the seventh commandment, do not murder. You cross the line when you are harboring anger and bitterness and resentment towards someone else. That's when you've murdered them. You've murdered them in, in your heart. Anybody guilty of that? Yeah, all of us, right? Okay, so f- what do you call a person who has murdered? A, a murder, right? A murderer. Okay, now think about what we've just done. We've looked at three of the ten commandments, and we have found that we are all lying, thieving murderers. Welcome to Stonegate. Happy Easter. (laughs) But do you see what the Bible is trying to do for us? It's, It's trying to help us see, to open up our eyes that in the court of God, we are all criminals. You are, I am. And so the question becomes, do we see our sin? Which of these two thieves are are we, are are you? Do you see your need? Do you see your sin? One of my favorite pastors loves to say it this way. There's only one thing we need to come to Jesus. Just one thing. The only thing you need to come to Jesus is need. Need. And here's the problem, he says, so few people have it. Which of these two thieves represent you? Can you see your sin? Do you see your need before God? Do you see that left to yourself in the courtroom with God, just with your goodness, when the gavel comes down, guilty will be the verdict. Do you see your sin? Which of these two thieves represent you? That's question one. Do you see your sin? Here's question two. Do you see the Savior? That's the second question this text brings to the front for us to consider. Do you see the Savior? Now, it's really an amazing picture. These two criminals, they are pinned to a cross moments away from their death, and Matthew and Mark tell us that they're both hurling insults at Jesus. That's the picture. But something happens to one of these two criminals. For one of these two criminals, his eyes begin to open for the first time, and he begins to see. This is verse 40 of Luke 23. But the other, talking about the repentant criminal, the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But listen to this. But... This man, talking about Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. This thief is seeing more than his need, more than his sin. He is beginning to see the beauty of Jesus. Now, notice, this thief does not say, hey, you've got the wrong man here. He's falsely accused. That's not what the thief says, right? No, this thief says, this man has done nothing wrong. I want to give it to the thief. He's got good theology, right? There's only one man who passes the perfection test. And that one man is Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect one. He is the only sinless one. Everywhere you have fallen into sin, Jesus has stood. This man has done nothing wrong. But this criminal, he sees more than Jesus, this man without sin. When he looks at Jesus, he also sees a savior. Look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a remarkable moment. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
that this criminal had spent his life in high-handed sin, mocking his maker, right? Just unable to see. But on this day, in this moment, God opened his eyes, opened his heart. His heart came alive to the person of Jesus. And he did the only thing he knew to do. He just hurled his life through his life onto the risen Jesus. There are two thieves. One saw his sin. Even more importantly, he saw in Jesus a savior, but the other didn't. How about you? Which of these two thieves represents you? Can you see the beauty of Jesus? Not just your sin, but but Jesus as a savior, as the only one who can rescue you from your sin. All reputable historians agree that Jesus was a real person. So it's not a question of did Jesus exist, it's a question of who is Jesus? And we all have to answer that question. It's the most important question of your life. Who is Jesus? What are you gonna do with the person of Jesus? And we don't have the luxury of saying that, uh, here's what I'm gonna do with Jesus. Uh, Jesus, I'm gonna put him in the category over here of he was just a good guy. Jesus will not exist in that category or in that little box. Uh, Jesus, he said things that demanded action like, I am God. Uh, He said things like, I am the only way for you to be right with God. There is only one way to God and I am him. He said things like that. And so we can't keep Jesus over here in the category of just a good guy. If Jesus is a good guy in our mind, we have to take the next step and call him a great savior. We don't have the luxury of of looking at Jesus and saying, uh, you know, Jesus, he's just a good prophet. A good prophet speak true words. I am God, Jesus is saying. I am the only way. So we don't have the luxury of putting Jesus in this box of just being a good prophet. If we call Jesus a good prophet, we have to take the next step and also call him a great savior. This was the classic line from C.S. Lewis. He said, there's only three options with Jesus. Either Jesus is a liar, right? He's just fooled us all. Or Jesus is a lunatic. He's just crazy. I mean, think if you had some friends running around calling themselves God. You got to come through me to get to God. I mean, that would be weird, wouldn't it? So he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or you believe what he said and you join the movement that has changed the world. Split time, defined history. And you look at the person of Jesus and you call him Lord. Those are the options. Or again, as Tim Keller said, you can crown him or kill him, but the one thing you can't do is just say, well, what an interesting guy. He will not fit in that box. The resurrection of Jesus forces Jesus to the front. It makes us deal with him. Which thief are you? The one who could recognize Jesus as a savior or the one who couldn't? And then the third question. Do you see your sin? Do you see the Savior? And thirdly, have you experienced salvation? This is my favorite part of this text in Luke 23. Verse 42. And he, the repentant thief, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43. And he said to him, Jesus, talking to this criminal, truly I say to you, a criminal, 
Truly I say to you, a thief. Uh, truly I say to you, a, a person who um, deserves God's wrath. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal not only recognized Jesus, he received Jesus. He was rescued by Jesus. Now, what do we see about Jesus' rescuing work in this text? What, what do we learn about the rescuing work of Jesus? Well, we see that the rescuing work of Jesus is a gracious work. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Grace is the one-way love of God that just swallows us whole. That's grace. And that's what this thief received. This, this thief, he deserved punishment. He's a criminal, right? But rather than punishment, this thief got paradise. And friends, that is the unbelievably bright future that the resurrection of Jesus unlocks for the followers of Jesus. He got paradise. He didn't deserve it. He didn't um, unpin himself from a cross, run around and do some last-minute errands so he would sort of deserve paradise. No, he didn't do any of those things. He did the only thing any of us can do. He threw himself up on the grace of God. And friends, that's enough. That's all Jesus asked for you just to throw your life upon his grace. It is a gracious work. The rescuing work of Jesus is a guaranteed work. Jesus says, truly, I say to you. That's Jesus' way of saying, what I've promised will come to pass. When I save a person, I'll sustain them. Wouldn't we all say that death is scary? And death is coming for us all. And Jesus is saying here, I alone can make the moment of death safe for you. You can trust me. I, I am the one that defeated death. I'm the one that walked out of the grave. You can trust me. I will make death safe for you. It's a guaranteed work. The rescuing work of Jesus is also a time-sensitive work. Jesus' rescuing work, what he did for this criminal on the cross, what he did for this man will not go on forever. At your death or at the return of Jesus, his rescuing work will stop. His rescuing work will be over. And friends, you do not know the day of your death. There's not a person in here who knows the day when Jesus will return. So that makes this decision, what we're going to do with Jesus, time sensitive. What could be more pressing in your life today than this? You dealing with forever. What could be more important? This is a decision, Jesus, what you're going to do with the person of Jesus. This is a decision that, friends, it just cannot be delayed. Today, Easter 2022, it is the day when you can receive this promise from Jesus. You will be with me in paradise forever. This is the day. Would you pray with me? And I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press down into your bones what would be helpful for you today.
And can we stop and acknowledge for many people here this morning, the Lord is loving you in such a personal way. He is orchestrated this morning. He orchestrated you being here in this moment. He orchestrated this particular text that we have worked through. He orchestrated this moment of you being asked the question, are you right with the risen Jesus? And he has done all of that as an expression of love for you. He's done all of that because this morning, before there even was a thing called time, he looked at you and said, I want you. I want you. So there are some today that this is your time. This is your day. This is the moment of your salvation. This is the moment you take that decisive step. You came in and you know you are not right with the risen Jesus. And Jesus today is loving you. He's calling you. He's opening up your heart. He's, he's giving you eyes that can see him just like that thief on the cross for the very first time. And he's saying today, this is your day. This is the moment where I want you to hold up your life and just throw it onto the grace of Christ. To hold up your life and say, Jesus, save me. Save me. And if that's you today, we're not going to shame you. We're not going to embarrass you in any way. But if that's you today, this is your day. This is your day to take that decisive step. Now, will you just raise your hand where you are there and make eye contact with me? Again, we're not going to embarrass you, shame you. We're going to pray for you. That's it. So would you just raise your hand there where you are if that's you today? Just make eye Yep, I see you there. I see you there. Yes. 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 Others, just make sure you make eye contact with me. Yep. Any others today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just raise your hand, make eye contact with me. Yeah. Others today? Yep. Mm-hmm. Others today that you'd say, this is the day. This is the moment where I'm pushing my life across the line. Yes to Jesus. Any others? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. For all of those who raised your hand, first, we just want to celebrate with you. I mean, this is Jesus just continuing what he's done for thousands of years now, rescuing and saving people. And then we want to pray for you. Father, for these new family members, would you bless them today? Would you encourage them today? Would you fill them with great faith in you, their God? And Father, we all want to say, as your kids say, we want to say thank you. Thank you for walking out of the grave, Jesus. Thank you for that rescuing work, oh Jesus. Thank you that we can bank our life on the promise that when we die or you return, we're going to be with you forever. That's what the resurrection assures. Oh God, we are thankful. We are thankful. It's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen.